All right. George Whitfield. He was one of the most remarkable evangelists in church history. He was instrumental in what is sometimes referred to as the Great Awakening, where incredible numbers of people became Christians in the 18th century. Whitfield was probably the most well-known person in the American colonies as he traveled up and down the, the East Coast. He was a very uh, solid theologically evangelist. He was incredibly passionate. He was very dramatic in his delivery. And he had a booming voice, a booming voice. Sometimes it was estimated that he would preach to tens of thousands of people. No microphone. That is what I call a booming voice, right? Absolutely incredible. And so his very lively style of preaching, it differed a lot from his peers in England and North America. So he was very, very impactful. However, in the midst of all this popularity, Whitfield had his detractors. One of the detractors, or group of detractors, was a group they called themselves the Hellfire Club. That's some club there. So what this club would do is that they would go and they would uh, mock Whitfield and other notable preachers. They would go and listen to them, actually go and listen to them, see how they would preach, and then they would have kind of... Um, fake religious services where they would get up and imitate these preachers and so forth. Well, one of the men who was part of this Hellfire Club was a guy, his name was Mr. Thorpe. So on one occasion, Thorpe prepared to preach like Whitfield. So he opened up a Bible and he read aloud from where it just opened up to Luke chapter 13. And he read this verse out loud. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. As for what happened next, I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon, the famous British pastor, he related this story of what took place. Quote, as he spoke upon that text, he was carried beyond himself, lost all thought of mockery, spoke as one in earnest, and was the means of his own conversion. <laughs> he was carried by the force of truth beyond his own intention like one who would play in a river and is swept away by its current. So in the very midst of mocking, Thorpe was converted by the power of the Word of God. It's incredible, isn't it? As a footnote, Thorpe went on to become a notable preacher in his own right. I don't know if they mocked him, <laughs> his friends or not. There's just nothing like the Bible, is there? The Word of God. And people have attacked it for centuries, but it remains and always will remain. It's no mere book, but the church has upheld for centuries that it is the divinely inspired and an errant word of God that leads people to salvation and then strengthens them in their faith. 
Indeed, nothing produces spiritual growth like the Word of God. Amen? Research they've done, personal experience would all bear that out. And so our passage today is a tremendous text. It really uh, affirms these very truths. And my prayer is that each one of us, our esteem and regard for the Word of God would soar after hearing this message today, as well as just an inner resolve to really dig it, dig into it and apply it to our very lives. I hope that it will be said of us that what was said about the Thessalonian church, where Paul said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. So we're going to continue our series on this incredible book of the New Testament. So far, we've covered 21 verses as Peter uh, unpacked just the great riches of our salvation. And then he kind of changed gears as we saw last week. If you remember, we talked about the difference between indicatives and imperatives. Peter starts moving into these imperatives about how we are to live as followers of Christ, enjoying this very rich salvation that we have, okay? And so today's passage, there's going to be three parts to this text. There's going to be the saving word of God, putting away sin, and then the strengthening word of God. So the first part before us today is the saving word of God. So let's read verse 22 together. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Peter begins by referring to their obedience to the truth, which again, I think he's talking about here the truth is the gospel. He's talking about their conversion. He made this reference back in verse 2 when he said that they were elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ. As I said then, truth is not just learned, but it's obeyed, right? We don't just learn about the truths of the gospel. We're out to obey them. The famous German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words, only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. There's just this dynamic interplay between belief and obedience that, that is being highlighted here. Now, there's so many reasons why that God converts us. He causes us to obey salvation. And so one of the things, though, that Peter specifically mentions here, what we're commanded to, to do here, another imperative again, is that we are to love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. We all know how important love is for the Christian life, right? I mean, Jesus calls us to love each other as we love ourselves. And love should be the defining characteristic of the church, right? It should be love. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we would just love each other earnestly, it will grab the world's attention as they see something in our midst that is different than you can find anywhere else in the world. So just look around this room. Look around this room. God expects us 
to love each other earnestly. Not just because Valentine's Day is coming up. We are to have a deep, earnest love for the church of God. Amen? Now, there's a lot more to be said there about loving one another. I'm going to not develop that here today because it's going to pop back into focus in chapter 4. We'll talk more about it there. Let's move on in verses 23 to 25 where the focus shifts to God who saves us through his word. Let's read verses 23 to 25 together. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we should love one another. What Peter's getting at here is that because we have been born again by God. Again, this echoes what he said earlier. Go back up in verse 3. Peter said that God has caused us to be born again. And this is so fascinating. This is see what the, the, the richness of our salvation because you see it from two different perspectives. On one hand, we see it from the human side. In verse 22, it talks about how we are to obey, right? So we hear the gospel and we obey what it teaches. So there's that human element, right, of our conversion. But you also see the divine side of things, don't you? Verse 23, where it talked about God causes us to be born again. He makes us spiritually alive. And so both angles, both elements, both sides, both perspectives work together when a person becomes a Christian. God makes them spiritually alive, and they respond by obeying the truth. Beautiful, isn't it? Here's a very important truth, too. What God uses is his word to bring about our conversion. It's not like you just wake up one day, no exposure at all, and say, I want to become a Christian. No, God uses the Word of God to bring about our conversion. God uses His Word. How about Romans 10, 17? It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. James 1:17 says, of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth. You say, well, so what happens exactly? Well, this is kind of what would happen in a nutshell, is that you and I hear the Word of God, specifically the gospel, the message of salvation, what is literally means the good news, right? We hear this. So what exactly is that? Well, we need to understand who God is, right? We need to know who God is and His attributes and the things He's done in this world. We need to have an idea about God. And then we also need to have an idea about ourselves. We need to know that you and I are made in the image of God. Uniquely of all creatures. But we're also fallen creatures, aren't we? In our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because God is perfectly just, our sinful actions deserve punishment. And so then that leads us to what Jesus comes and does, right? Who's fully God, who's fully man. He died on the cross to take our place. He lived out all the expectations of the Old Testament Messiah, and he did all of those things, and then he went to the cross to take our place. 
And then he rose again, right church? Three days later to show that he was victorious over the grave. So that's the gospel. We need to hear that. And so for some people, when they hear it or they read it, when they take in the gospel, it stirs in them saving faith, right? It impacts their heart. They understand who God is. He's not just out there somewhere. He doesn't just exist, but he actually wants a relationship with you and I. And we start seeing that we need forgiveness, that we've offended this righteous God, and that Jesus is the way to salvation. And so it becomes personal, right? And we believe in him and trust him for salvation. That is the saving word of God. So friend, I'd like to ask you a question. Can you say with confidence that that has happened in your life, that you believe the gospel in that way, that it's good news to you, not just information, right? Not just even kind of inspirational, not just interesting or whatever it might be, but good news to you. You know how good news impacts you, right? I mean, you just love it. You resonate with it. You can't get enough of it, right? And that's what it's supposed to do to us. When we understand who we are and we hear that good news, we embrace it. So if that hasn't happened in your life, I just urge you, you know, to follow through, to think about these things, to ask some Christians you might know in your life, some questions. I'd love to talk with you. Shoot me an email. Give me a call. Talk after church. Set up a lunch. Whatever. Would love to talk to you about those things. But do something about it. Read the scriptures. Go to one of the gospels, right? Learn what Jesus actually said. Do some research. Follow through. Don't let this just fall by the wayside. Amen? Nothing more important than this. Believe the gospel. Good news being offered to you today. In Acts 16.31, it promises, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The saving word of God. Now, as Peter also points out here, the word of God not only saves us, but it is abiding. He also calls it imperishable. And what does he contrast the imperishable word of God with? There in that passage, he compares it to us. We're like grass. <laughs> That's pretty humbling, but it's so true if you stop and think about it. You know, Peter, he was familiar with the wildflowers there in Palestine, probably thinking about those things, how for a season, boy, they look great, don't they? Just beautiful, filled with colors. But before you know it, those wildflowers are gone. They're perishable. You and I might last a little bit longer than those wildflowers. But in light of eternity, it's just a short period of time. But the word of God is imperishable. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What a great joy to know that this word isn't just for a few days or a few years or a few centuries, but it lasts forever, amen? As I mentioned earlier, you know, the Bible's been attacked through the centuries to make it perish. People want it to go away. But more, probably more than any other book, the Bible's been attacked. But it still just stands there, imperishable. 
One of the biggest critics of the Bible was the 18th century French philosopher named Voltaire. He was a very famous figure in the Enlightenment. Voltaire was a deist and really sharply critical of Christianity. He he called it, quote, the infamous superstition. And when he would write letters to his friends, he would actually sign his letters saying, quote, crush the infamy, referring to Christianity. I mean, this guy was sold out. He was hardcore against Christianity, wanted to debunk it. He wrote a two-volume commentary attacking the Bible. He says in the book, his aim was, quote, to make the whole building crumble. And Voltaire was convinced, as he was in the 18th century, that the Bible was about to, I mean, excuse me, Christianity was about to disappear, that it was in its twilight, it was about to be gone. Well, Voltaire perished, and here we are, several centuries later, and you know what? I think he was a little bit wrong, don't you? Because Christianity has not perished. In fact, it has grown and spread all throughout all corners of the world. The Bible continues to remain the most read and printed book around the world, And interestingly enough, just kind of a couple of ironic things about Voltaire, about 16 years after his death, the very printing presses that he used to print his works were now starting to be used to print, guess what? The Bible into French. About 50 years or so after his death, one of his homes was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva to store what? Bibles. God's got a great sense of humor, I think. (laughs) But he's also not going to let his word ever perish. Despite all of the attacks. I love the poem called The Anvil of God's Word. It's attributed to John Clifford. He says, Last eve I paused besides the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil bears, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word for, skept- for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. The saving and abiding word of God. Amen, church? The second part is putting away sin from our passage. Let's read verse, chapter 2, verse 1 together. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So Peter kind of resumes his discussion about relations between believers. So not only are we commanded to love one another earnestly, but we're also commanded to put away sin. As he says there, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I think he's highlighting these things because, you know, we really can't love each other earnestly if these sins are prevalent in the body of Christ. Now, he mentions five different sins going on there. Let me just focus on one here today. I'm going to talk about envy. This is fresh in my mind because we just talked about it uh, a week or so ago in, in one of our life groups. So why is envy 
damaging and destructive for ourselves and for the church. Where, what is envy? When we talk about envy, we're talking about something different than when we covet. Covet just talks about things, like possessions we have. We covet those things. But envy refers to internal stuff. In other words, you envy something, a characteristic or quality about somebody, a trait they have, a personality characteristic, the way they look, the way they speak, their intelligence, their position, or so forth, their status. You're envying them for something they have, and it's something inward in our hearts. And we see examples of this in Scripture. Remember, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, Cain envied Abel's sacrifice, right? How about... Joseph's brothers, right? Joseph comes strutting around with that coat of many colors, and his brothers envied him because of his status in front of his father. How about King Saul? He was the king. He had no reason to be, but he was still envious of David. And it's said of the religious leaders that they, in the New Testament, that they were envious of Jesus. That was one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. So, we find envy in Scripture. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to find it in our own hearts. As we talked about in our life group, you know, we typically envy people who are similar in a way and have something that we have. We are similar to them, and they're superior to us in something that matters to us. So if it's something that we don't really care about, we're not really envious. But if it's something that matters to us, then all of a sudden that envy in our hearts gets stirred up, doesn't it? And so if you find somebody who's maybe better than you at your occupation, it stirs you up, doesn't it? Or if you look around and you see someone who's more attractive or they have you know, better personality, more outgoing and so forth, we get envious. And the thing about envy is it's embarrassing, you know. No one wants to ever admit you're envious because then you're weak. You're kind of explaining you're weaker than other people, and we don't like to do that as well. You say, well, how does it come out? Well, it comes out when we uh, like to criticize other people excessively, right? When we feel defensive around people that we do think are superior to us in some way, we feel defensive around them, don't we? And we rejoice when we see them fail, don't we? Ever ever that happen in your life? Kind of scary stuff sometimes if we look in our hearts. Keeps going on. We sometimes blame God because he gave others a better lot in life. And so envy, when all this takes root, it erodes our ability to love one another because instead of rejoicing at gifts that God has given to other people, we covet them, don't we? We want them for ourselves. And so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about the love chapter, he says that love does not envy. So very simply, we cannot love another person if we are envious of them. Wow. <laughs> Sin's kind of dangerous, isn't it? And that's just one of the five that he mentioned. So Peter commands us to put it away. This isn't something we can just kind of play with, is it? We need to take it seriously. It's interesting, the Greek word put away is often used in the New Testament of, of kind of like how people would put aside a garment. They would just take it off and put it away. 
but it's used in this kind of metaphorical way to talk about sin. You're right? So imagine wearing a huge coat. Today it's appropriate to wear a big coat, right? But yesterday it was really nice. So you, you might have worn a big coat and then you take it off, you put it away. God wants us to do that. He's commanding us to put away sin. And it's not just Peter, but this is all throughout the New Testament. Let's give you a few verses to hear from God's word this morning. Colossians 3.8 says, Now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. James 1.21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Church, if we're going to grow spiritually, part of discipleship, becoming like Christ, means that you and I, we have to put away sin, don't we? I know this is never the top of the you know, most popular sermon topics to talk about, right? We'd rather hear about other things. But if we're going to become like Christ, we have to lay aside, we have to put aside sin. We can't grow in godliness and hang on to sin. Plus, our sin hurts the entire church as we are affecting other people. But let me encourage you. You can put away sin. You can put away sin. By God's grace, he doesn't command you to do something that you cannot do. So no matter how long you have struggled with a sin or many sins, no matter how deep that struggle is, God, by his grace, enables his people to put away sin. So don't leave here defeated, amen? Let this be a motivation to you to take God at his word. may not happen overnight, but it can happen. You can put away sin. Come to the last part of our passage here, the third part. You know, earlier we saw the saving word of God. Now we're going to come to the strengthening word of God. The same word of God that saves us is also used to strengthen us. Let's read verses two and three together. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, just to, cut, to clarify here, I don't think Peter. Is, is kind of calling them baby Christians like, hey, you guys need to grow up. And a couple of other places in the New Testament, Hebrews 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, the writers there do exhort the readers because they were immature and he was calling them baby Christians. Peter's not saying that here. I think what he's getting at, he's just using the analogy that just as a baby craves milk, so too you and I, we need to crave the word of God, Amen. That is what nourishes us. That is what strengthens us. Peter calls it milk. He calls it pure spiritual milk. You say, well, how does that help us? Well, I would say this. In addition to creating saving faith in us, it strengthens us. It tells us, the Word of God tells us about prayer, right? 
tells us how to pray, gives us examples. It talks to us about what God is looking for. I mean, it just lays it out for us. Here's the fruit of the Spirit, or here's various virtues that God wants us to live out. Here's various uh, characters, so we see how they're living it out in their lives, and we see it in Scripture. Scripture gives us wisdom about practical things in life, like work and finances and parenting and marriage. It tells us about the end of the world so that we know what's going to be happening, right? It tells us how to fight temptation when Jesus was out in the wilderness. What did he do with Satan? What did he do? He quoted Scripture, right? in the midst of temptation. Scripture is not something that is optional for you and I. We're not going to grow, right? We're just going to stay where we are. We're just going to stay little tiny Christians until we grow through the Word of God. But when we take in the Word of God, we just start growing and start growing and growing and growing and growing. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now Peter says that if we would take in the word of God we will grow up into salvation. You say well what does it mean to grow up into salvation aren't we already saved? Well, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, conversion's a one-time experience, but uh, salvation is something that happened in the past, is going on now, and will continue in the future, right? When Christ returns, that talks about how we're going to be saved when he, he returns. And so I think that's what he's talking about here. We're going to be prepared for salvation if we take in the Word of God now as believers, and we are prepared. So God wants us to grow up, <laughs> He wants us to grow up getting ready for salvation when Jesus returns. The passage closes with Peter's statement, if indeed you have tasted, the Lord is good. He said, why does Peter throw that in there? Is he trying to make them doubt their salvation? Why does Peter say that? I don't think he's trying to make them doubt their salvation, but what I do think he is saying to them is that he's causing them to evaluate themselves, right? To make sure that they do know the Lord. And we see this in other places in Scripture where, uh, where, we're talked to, where our salvation is laid out there, our beliefs and our living, and the readers are encouraged to make sure that they line up with that, right? And it's not meant to be, okay, I don't, I don't see that at all. That's not the point of it. He's actually saying, this is what you should see. This is what you should be believing. This is how you should be living. Not that you're perfect, but this is how we're striving toward this. And when we see it, it's like, boom, okay, that is what I'm supposed to be doing. I see that in my life, and now I have even greater confidence and assurance because what God has expected of me, I'm living that out. Amen? Do you see that? He's writing these words so that our confidence would be deepened. If we know the Lord, it's going to bear fruit. And that fruit will give us even greater confidence that he has done a work in our lives. As we close, let me just be very practical. As we're talking about the strengthening word of God. Because I just think this is so vital. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in 20 plus years of ministry that so very often it, our, our lives are so much affected by what we do with the Word of God. Amen? It is so important, so critical, 
So if this is something this morning, maybe we're struggling, having some apathy, kind of needing some godly encouragement, I hope that God might use this in our lives for us to realize that we don't just live by bread alone, right? As Jesus said, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let me just give you three things to consider here this morning for all of us to grow in really taking in the word of God, strengthened by it. Very practical tips. One, just uh, to start off here, is use a reading plan. Use a reading plan with Scripture. I think it's so vital to have a plan. So otherwise, if if we're just waking up every day and saying, I I, I have to think of somewhere to go read, or I'm just going to open up the Bible and wherever it lands... I, I, my experience sometimes is that gets kind of quickly frustrating or disappointing, and you kind of run out of things to think about. But I think it's vital to have a reading plans, and there are a variety of reading plans out there for Christians to follow. There's a one-year reading plan to read the whole Bible from cover to cover, or if you want to spread it out over two years, you can read it chronologically. There are all kinds of different reading plans, but I think it's important that you and I are taking it in. Maybe say, you know what, I want to focus on the Gospels next in my reading, or I want to focus on the Psalms or the prophets or whatever, but just that there's some sort of framework and plan for you and I to grow as we're understanding the Word of God. So to use a reading plan, that is so vital. Second thing is to use study tools. You know, we live an incredible day and age when it comes to having resources at our disposal to know the Word of God. I mean, you just look all around. There are study Bibles. There are Bible studies. There are podcasts. There's online tools. On and on it goes. We have so much at our fingertips so that you and I can learn and grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures. You can use our church's subscription to Right Now Media. Guess how many online Bible studies, video Bible studies, Right Now Media offers? Over 20,000 videos. I don't think we will ever, ever get through all of those, will we? But they're just right there from wonderful Bible teachers covering all kinds of topics. Use those resources. Make the most of them. I know my life changed as a new Christian when I just said, you know what, school got done. I was in college, and I wrapped up school. and said, you know what I want to do this summer? I want to read the New Testament. I have never really read the Bible. I sat down, and I read the New Testament. I got a notebook out. I started writing questions down, and I read all the notes in that study Bible that there were there. And when that summer was over, you know what, man, I was on my way. I started to really see the riches of God's Word, and I didn't want to settle for anything less. I knew that I was walking out into this incredible, this bounty of truth, and I wanted to soak it up for all that it was worth. And I would also just add that a great study tool is the good old-fashioned group Bible study. Amen? There is so much that you gain when you just sit down with other believers in a group, and you're sharing and discussing insights, learning from each other, passing on your insights, it becomes real and personal, and you remember it so much more when we take in the Word of God that way. And then one other thing that I think is important for you and I to be strengthened by the Word of God 
And listen to this. Pursue godliness. Where'd that come from? Pursue godliness. Here's what I mean by this. Sin weakens our hunger for Scripture. Sin weakens our hunger from Scripture. From my experience, it's not that Christians misunderstand the Bible and grow cold. Rather, sin takes hold and diminishes that craving for the Word. You ever seen that in your life? If sin starts taking root, all of a sudden, you're just not really as interested in reading the Bible like you were before. The Bible didn't change but our hearts just aren't craving it like they were before. It's like when a person eats so much junk food that, you know, that's, that their, their, their taste and their appetites just kind of, that's all they crave after a while. And so if someone comes along and says, hey, would you like something healthy? They don't have a desire for it because all they're taking in is junk food. And that's like us if we just have sin coming into our hearts. And here's the word all of a sudden. It doesn't sound as appealing, does it? become clean with God, it's amazing how our spiritual hunger starts kicking back in and the Word of God becomes alive to us. Amen? So as we want to grow in being strengthened by the Word, perhaps that's something here this morning that we need to lay aside some sin, to put some sin away so that our hearts become alive again to the Word of God. As I said at the beginning of the message, may it be said of us what was said about the Thessalonian church. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the living Word of God. Thank you that you've given to us your Word that will never pass away. We rejoice and celebrate that we have that in our midst. And Lord God, we have so much to be thankful for here this morning. We thank you, God, that we have a church, Lord, to learn from each other, to grow in our knowledge of who you are. Lord, we have all these tools at our disposal. We pray that you might stir a passion and a fire within us to wake us out of our slumber if maybe we're apathetic here today, to dig deep into the truths of your word. And Lord, I also pray, Lord, if there's sin in our hearts that is hindering us, that the word has just kind of sat on the shelf and gathering dust, Lord. May today we repent of whatever might be hindering us. Put it away. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Remind us that you are a righteous God that you desire your people to live this out. And Lord, I pray for salvation. Your word is the saving word of God. Lord, may you use what has been spoken here today. Use your word in a powerful way to draw someone to a true knowledge of who you are. Help them to see the truth of who you are, who they are, who Christ is, and how there is salvation waiting for them if they will turn from their sin believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. God, thank you again for this time in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.